Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, on our second show of 2023, I'm going to be talking to one of my favorite scholars who has insights on virtually every major issue that we see unfolding today, and that is Dr. Nancy R. Percy. Many of you will find her name familiar because she has a number of books. She has a new book coming out in June, which we'll be talking about later this year. But her most recent book that we talk about is Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. She's also the author of Finding Truth, Total Truth, Saving Leonardo, The Soul of Science. We end up talking about most of these books during the upcoming conversation. Just to give you a bit of background on her for those of you who aren't familiar with her heralded as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual by The Economist she's the author of a series of books which have won the 2005 ECPA Gold Medallion Award and also the Gold Medallion Award in 2000. She's a visiting scholar at Biola's Univer- Biola University's pardon me, Tory Honors Institute she's been a professor of worldview studies at Karen University and a friend Francis A. Schaefer Scholar at the World Journalism Institute. Currently, she is a professor of apologetics and a scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. She is a fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture and the editor-at-large of the Percy Report. She has addressed staffers on Capitol Hill and at the White House, actors and screenwriters in Hollywood, scientists at Sandia and Los Alamos National Laboratories, students and faculty at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, Dartmouth, USC, UGA and St. John's College, and educational and activist groups including the Heritage Foundation at Washington, D.C. Formerly an agnostic, Percy studied in Heidelberg in the early 70s, in Switzerland, the Labrie Fellowship under Francis Schaeffer, earned a BA from Iowa State University, an MA from Covenant Theological Seminary, and pursued graduate work in history of philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I do hope you find this conversation in which we cover everything from transgenderism, transhumanism, the World Economic Forum, international transgender lobby groups, and much more as enlightening as I did. So we have talked about your book, Love Thy Body, before. And the question I wanted to start with before we really get into the book is it's now, I believe, almost exactly five years since the book has been published. It was published January of 2018. And things have gone a lot crazier since then. And I was wondering, looking at the book you submitted for publication before 2018 and at the book's publication, and then looking at now where we are in 2023, what do you think, if anything, you would change with the book? And then more importantly, what would you add to the book? That's the first time I've been asked that question. That is a really interesting question. First of all, when I published Love Thy Body, it was a completely new message. You know, when I said, look, all of these moral issues ultimately depend on the view of the body, whether it's abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, and so on. I was focusing on teaching people that all of these depend on a view of the body. The most obvious is transgenderism, which is the issue that's taken off, by the way, the most. But the most obvious was transgenderism because transgender activists argue explicitly that your gender has nothing to do with your biological sex. 
Uh, there's a BBC documentary you talked about what's what's happened since my book. For example, uh, there was a BBC, excuse me, it was not a documentary. It was a BBC video aimed at teenagers and it featured a young girl who, she was obviously a girl, but she identified as non-binary. And she said, it doesn't matter what meat skeleton you've been born in. It's your feelings that count. And another thing that's come out since the book that underscores the theme of the book was there's a website for parents and professionals who are concerned about the trans movement. It's called Fourth Wave Now. And it's been a lifesaver for a lot of parents whose kids are are coming out as trans. But it had an interview with a detransitioner, a young girl who had detransitioned She had identified as a boy at age 11, and then at age 14, she she lived as a trans boy for three years. At age 14, she detransitioned, and these are her exact words. She said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to love your body. I wish this interview had come out before my book, (laughs) because that's exactly the theme of the book titled Love Thy Body. So it was reinforcing that. Another example that's come out since my book is a young woman who transitioned and successfully passed as a man for 10 years. And then she became a Christian. She started, her mother was working for a Bible, was in a Bible study, and she started transcribing their their events or something like that. At any rate, she got exposed to Christianity and she became a Christian. And it's interesting because at first she thought it was okay to keep living as a man. In fact, here's how she put it. She said, I aspired to be a true man of God. <laughs> and, and then one day when she was praying, she seemed to hear God say to her, you cannot love me and yet reject my creation. And of course, she knew what that meant. She meant that meant her body, you know, that her biological sex was how God had created her and that she needed to. If she, you know, if she loved God, she needed to accept the way God had created her. So since my book came out, there have been many more examples reinforcing. You're starting to see even, even secular people are begin, beginning to say transgenderism represents body hatred. That's a term you'll see now, body hatred or biology denial. And people weren't saying that when my book came out. You know, this this is new. I mean, it's reinforcing what I said in my book. But and the other the other thing I've noticed is in my book for Christians, I talked a lot about how this was re, in a sense of paralleling ancient Gnosticism. Christians tend to know that term because many of the New Testament books are written against Gnosticism. And I see that more and more these days is is especially among Christians saying, oh, man, this is a form of Gnosticism, because for those who don't know what that term means, it was an ancient worldview that was around in the New Testament times that denigrated the material world that said the material world is the, the realm of death, decay and destruction. And therefore, the goal of salvation is to escape the material world and to, to go into the transcendent realms, you know, above above the physical world. And that wasn't being that wasn't happening when my book was written. Of course, I did talk about Gnosticism in Love Thy Body. So that's a theme that I've seen a lot of Christians pick up on in, in my Twitter feed or in my Facebook. This happened just yesterday. This uh, some I, I posted I posted an article that I recently wrote. I wrote an article for the Federalist on transgenderism and how parents can help children 
And of course, one of the responses on Twitter was, this is this is Gnosticism, pure and simple. And have you seen Helen Joyce's book? So she's a very secular person. She's a British journalist. The book was endorsed by Richard Dawkins, of all people, purely secular point of view. She was writing about I think the subtitle of the book, the book is just called Trans, and the subtitle is When Reality Meets Ideology. And so the whole point of the book is, is, look, we need to recover our understanding of biology because human beings are biological creatures. We are biologically male and female. We are a binary species. You know, when 99.9% of people are either male or female, then on, in t- purely biological terms, it's, it's appropriate to call humans a, bio, a binary species. And, and the few exceptions because of, of hormonal or genetic problems which is intersex. Intersex people are such a tiny minority and, and, and they're clearly genetic anomalies. So and every every species has genetic anomalies. You know, that's that's not unusual. Many of the themes of the first of all, the good news, I mean I think this is good news that many of the themes of the book have now been picked up and amplified and accepted. I have to tell you, the one place that I still find it the hardest to find people who really understand Dan and pick up on the, the the themes of the book are Christian audiences. I get invited to speak at Christian schools and universities and seminaries, and Christians are so used to a negative message. They're so used to saying, this is wrong, it's against the Bible, it's a sin, don't do it, and there's something wrong with you. The the first book that ever came out from a Christian perspective, it was when I was still writing Love Thy Body. And of course, I had to read everything that was coming out on the subject. The message of the book was, these people are rebelling against God by not accepting their identity, their biological identity. And I thought, you can't talk to people that way. If you have a young person who is struggling with gender dysphoria, you don't approach them and say, you're rebelling against God. It's not It's not an effective way to win over their hearts. So I still find that Christian audiences have a harder time because they're so used to the negative message that when I say, you know, my first step, you know, when I get to the end of my talk, I say, okay, let's get practical. You know, what are some practical strategies? My first practical strategy is change your language. Use language like respect your body, honor your body, live the way God has designed you. I have a really wonderful quote from a young woman who was lived as a lesbian for many years. And today she is married to a man. You have to say that these days. She's married to a man and has two children. And she wrote an article in public discourse where she explained why she changed. And she said, this is a direct quote. She said, I came to trust that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. And I say, okay, this is the language we want to use. Or another example, for, and this is in the book, of a young man, a young man who, who was exclusively same-sex attracted most of his growing up years, and now is married to a woman and has three children. And he said, what, what changed? He said, I came to accept my body as my you know, my basis of my identity instead of my feelings. He said, I came to accept my body as a good gift from God. And eventually my feelings started to follow suit. So that's the language I try to help people use. Love your body, honor the 
honor the creator's design, accept your body as a good gift from God. You know, and for many people, this is such a mental shift that I, I find that it's, it's, that is perhaps the most difficult mental shift I find that people have to make when they, when they read Love Thy Body is to change from the negative language to the positive language. Do you think that perhaps one of the difficulties with Protestant audiences would be that so many Protestants are totally unaware of the natural law inheritance that the reformers all would have subscribed to? And that so when you make an argument that relies heavily on natural law as a different kind of revelation that they just don't know what to do with those arguments because it's such a foreign way of, of debating and approaching an issue? Well, you're absolutely right. The reformers both, Calvin and Luther, you know, they did accept natural law. They did accept the notion, the notion that we can derive to some degree, we can derive our ethics from the way God made us. You know, our bodies give us a moral message. Yes. And later Protestants did tend to lose that and tended to have sort of a, a view that we can only you know just trust the Bible and nothing else. And we have lost the notion, you're right, I have to almost re-educate people in the idea that, you know what, it helps to it helps to have a contrast. We all learn better by contrast. So what I do is I show that the secular view of these moral issues dismisses the body. One of my favorite quotes is from Camille Paglia. You may know her. She's an outspoken lesbian. Did you know, Jonathan, she's now identifying as trans? I saw that, and it actually kind of surprised me because she would have struck me as one of the old lefty radicals like Jermaine Greer, Andrew Sullivan, those types. I did not expect her to pull that card. Exactly, because she has up until now. Well, in one of her earlier books, this is where I, I have a quote from her that I actually put in the frontispiece of my book because I thought it was so representative of the, of the secular view. In one of her earlier books, she says, she argues against the postmodern notion that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, no, no. Nature made us male and female. In fact, it's a, she has a really unusual quote. She says something like, humans are designed for sexual reproduction. She uses the word designed, which doesn't quite fit her worldview. <laughs> so humans are designed for sexual reproduction. Well, and then you say, how do you justify being a lesbian or today being trans? Well, she goes on in the same essay saying, why not defy nature? In other words, nature made us this way, binary, but why not defy nature? And then this is a direct quote. She says, after all, fate, she's, she claims to be a pagan. So fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. The logic of the secular view that she's representing is, if our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, then they have no intrinsic purpose that we are moral, uh, morally obligated to respect. They give us no clue to our identity. They convey no moral message. We may do with them whatever we see fit. So I help people to recognize this is what happens when you reject the natural law. This is when you reject the idea that you can take your morality to some degree by how God made us. Yes, we live in a fallen world. So nature is not our only source of moral moral knowledge but it is a source of moral knowledge which secular people have rejected and when they reject it they end up where Camille Paglia is which is 
Who cares if nature made us this way? Oh, let me give you another example, because this is one that probably is quoted in my book, but you asked about what's happened since my book. This has happened since my book, a Princeton University professor named Gail Solomon came out with a book defending transgenderism. I think it was the first one to come out from an academic source. It was just defending transgenderism. It's interesting because she starts out by admitting that transgenderism involves self-alienation, self-estrangement. In other words, you know, the mind estranged from the body. And you would think, you know, this is not a defense, you know, to me, this is a critique that transgenderism involves, you know, dividing your inner self from your body and causing that that sense of self-alienation. But at any rate, then when you get to where she defends transgenderism, she says, what the physical body tells us is nothing. The the physical body tells us nothing. It has no meaning at all. The physical body tells us nothing. It has no meaning at all. So that's another instance of what the secular view, the secular worldview, the philosophy behind transgenderism is that there is no more natural law, that the body tells us nothing. It gives us no moral message. I think it's helpful to say, okay, this is the secular view. That helps Christians to recognize that's not the Christian view, that the way God created us is intended to be normative. It's intended to give us a moral message. We are intended to take our identity from our body. And so this is that kind of contrast often helps like you said, with a a, um, Christian audience that has kind of lost the notion of natural law. When you're looking at the trans issue, which in in many degree ways, like some of the quotes you just that you just listed kind of sound like, you know, liberalism, but applied to biology. And what we're kind of seeing, though, is a lot of people I'd like to to hear a little bit about your forecast, because 2018 to 2023 is only five years, but a very long five years in terms of what we've seen unfold in the culture on all three of the major issues you cover in your book. So on the extremely positive side, of course, your book was published when Roe v. Wade was the law of the land, and today that is no longer the case, which is probably the most significant development in abortion politics worldwide since the abortion debate began. The first time a nation that had affirmed abortion as a constitutional right changed its mind and said explicitly that it was not a constitutional right. With assisted suicide, of course, we've seen countries like Canada actually in only five years suddenly outpace even the Netherlands and Belgium for for a sort of a nonstop trickle of horror stories based on a lot of the premises you discuss in the book. And on the trans issue, we've gone from sort of a very monolithic view to just in the last couple of months, we're starting to see a few cracks in the consensus. So You had the BBC and The Guardian, which broke first, and they were more or less forced to because they had to cover the NHS report that revealed so many of the dangers of what's called the affirmative model, which is to essentially accept any gender dysphoria as fact and then proceed along with chemical and finally physical transition. But then now you've had Reuters, you've had the New York Times, you've had these other, you know, sort of bastions of transgender ideology publish these cautionary articles saying, hey, maybe bone density is important, you know, if you like having a skeleton or, you know, maybe we should be looking at what this is doing to prepubescent teens. Maybe 
Maybe maybe for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction like we learned in primary school science class and that the things that we're doing are going to have a long-term cost. And it's really interesting to me because part of me thinks that some of these journalists at some of these publications are now hearing the wave of testimonies by, by detransitioners like Chloe Cole. I wrote about her recently for First Things and her saying, maybe we better get on the record with some cautionary articles before we turn out to have been stalwart defenders of the worst scientific mistakes since eugenics. What is your take on, on the shift in conversation just in the last year and a half? To tell you the truth, I didn't expect it because, well, I tend to think that a culture lives out its worldview and the worldview it has accepted, like I said a moment ago, was biology doesn't matter. All that matters is your feelings. And that's been around, well, it's been around since the Gnostics. It's been around for a long time. That sort of body denial, you know, that denigration of biology has been part of the Western mind for a long time. And not just the Western mind, you know, Manichaeism and, you know, Augustine was a Manichae. And so Manichaeism was, was a Persian religion and it had that same dualism. So Hinduism has the same dualism that the mind is all that matters. The physical world doesn't matter. So it seems to be a common pattern in the in the in the human mind to denigrate the body. It's interesting because in the modern West we've had a period we had a period where the the body was more important, right? Secularism that says there is no supernatural, there is no non-material world, and so for a period of time it looked like I was wrong. I even had a, a Christian philosopher, a Protestant, <laughs> a Protestant philosopher who reviewed my book negatively. I, I think it's the only negative review, and he was mostly positive. But the one thing he said that was negative was, he said, "Oh, oh Nancy's wrong. The secular world does not denigrate the body and elevate the mind. If anything, the secular worldview tends to." overly exalt the body because he's thinking of the secular, you know, the, the, the Richard Dawkins types, the materialists who say there is no non-material or spiritual realm. Well, it looks like that is being totally contradicted by the trans movement, which has turned it completely around and, and, and has reinstated that, you know, the, the body doesn't matter, which, which te- tends to be much, if apparently much more intrinsic to the human mind. At any rate, so I didn't expect it to change, but I am very, very thankful for the detransitioners. Oh, when I first started talking about detransitioners, people said, what? How could that be possible? Because, you know, the idea was you have finally discovered your true authentic self and 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 now now this is who you are. So it is wonderful that there's detransitioners like Chloe and Kyra Bell in England, the young woman caused such a change there. She went to the high court. She won at the high court. The high court is their name for the Supreme Court. As a detransitioner, she won her case. Her case was that the Tavistock, the largest gender clinic in England, is the Tavistock. And her argument was that she had a lot of psychological issues and they just ran roughshod over all of her psychological problems and immediately transitioned her. And that they really should have dealt with her psychological problems. And Chloe is the who you mentioned here in, in the US is making the same case. By the way, the high court decided in a favor and then reversed it. Nonetheless, that's what triggered the closing of the Tavistock. You know, the Tavistock was closed because here's how she put it. I read an article by her, by by Cara Bell. You know, she's only 23. <laughs> she's a very young woman. 
And she said when her case went to court, she said the justices were shocked. They had no idea that young people were being transitioned, you know, know, teenagers at such a young age that that they were being transitioned medically and physically, like you say, with surgery and everything. And that they were being transitioned so quickly without any real medical evaluation. And I I thought that was interesting that well-educated justices had no idea what was going on. And as soon as they did, they, you know, they ordered, they ordered the clinic shut down. And it's a mark of how fast this has gone. In 2016, my book, The Culture War came out and, and I had like a page and a half on the trans issue. You know, now it would be like at minimum an entire chapter. It kind of dominates everything, especially the sort of the specter of sex changes for kids was not a thing in in, in 2016. Right. Like this is the year Trump got elected. It's not that long ago, despite that it seems, you know, centuries have unfolded since then in some ways, because usually that's how long it takes for this kind of change to to, to happen at this sort of pace. And what I what I'm interested to, to know from you is what your forecast would be, because I'm of two minds when it looks when, when we're looking at gender ideology, because on one hand, there have been some very encouraging signs. And one of them is, I think, this new women's movement led by folks like Kira Bell and Chloe Cole. You know, we always knew that there were going to be people who were deeply damaged and deeply mutilated by what they'd gone through. We didn't know that, you know, you'd get these powerful, smart, articulate young women who were willing to lead the movement themselves and speak for themselves. So that development, I think, we knew that they existed we didn't know that some of these people would be of the leadership quality that they are. Chloe Cole, I've like you know when I've I've interviewed her before too, and just it's astonishing how how intelligent and how articulate she is for her age. She's still a teenager, and so there's that on one hand, and then of course you're seeing you know again like Richard Dawkins. You mentioned you know you got Dawkins, you've got you've got Andrew Sullivan, you got Barry Weiss. You have a lot of the liberals, most of them I might know, gay or lesbian who are very opposed to the T in LGBT. But I wonder, is this sort of a speed bump on our way to to a world in which the premises of your book do reign supreme? Is this Because people talk about a backlash, but I can't help but notice that when we're talking about a pendulum swinging, it's not swinging all the way back. Where the pendulum is swinging back to is, okay, we accept sex changes. Yes, a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man, but no kids, guys. Like, let's keep this away from the kids. So people like Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan and all these people would, would actually accept a lot of the fundamental premises of gender ideology. Although Andrew Sullivan tries to work in some biological component of it. Because, you know, he's a materialist and he needs to do that to sleep at night. But most of them will just sort of not care, you know, whether or not it's a real thing. So do you think we're seeing a backlash or do you just think that they tried to boil the frog too fast? We're going to see a bit of a speed bump, but we're going to actually return to the the conclusion of your book. I agree with you. That's why I said I was surprised. I was surprised at the speed bump. But I do agree with you. And here's let, let me let me point out one other element of the speed bump, though. First, feminists. You know, you mentioned you mentioned detransitioners. You you mentioned some liberals like Andrew Sullivan. Feminist. I am actually part of a group called Hands Across the Aisle. You probably know them. They have a public Facebook presence, but we also have a private group behind the scenes, so we can talk openly. It's composed of 
very conservative, mostly Christian women, and very liberal, leftist, socialist, lesbian women, the kind who are labeled TERFs. Trans-exclusionary radical feminists. Right, and that is used as a slur by liberals. So this would be like Julie Bindle, Posey Parker, J.K. Rowling, that type. Good, it's good that you named some names. That'll help people recognize them, yes. And and some of our people have... have spoken at congressional hearings. Kara Dansky is is one of them, for example. She's in our group. Julie Bindle's in our group. At any rate, the point is, we are working behind the scenes with with these feminists. Obviously, we can't talk about anything except the trans issue. It's the only thing we agree on. But but we are co-authoring op-ed pieces. We are working together on model legislation and so on. So that's that's an important element. I have to admit, it's a small section of the feminist movement. Most feminists have gone along with the transgender agenda, but but feminists have also a small group of TERFs have also stood up and created part of the you know they're part of the speed bump. Where I agree with you that it may be only a speed bump is that many people are saying transgenderism, transhumanists are saying that transgenderism is just a step to transhumanism. So this would be people like Martin Rothblatt, whose name used to be Martin. He used to be a male, transitioned to female, and to female identity, I should say, because he's not really female. But he's written a book actually called, I think the name of it is you know, from transgender to transhumanism. And he argues that transgenderism is just a step on the way to transhumanism. That as we discover that we can change people's sex, well, then we can change them in all kinds of other ways as well, using genetic engineering and surgery and biohacking and so on. I do tend to think that transhumanism is a big part of sort of the whole globalist agenda that is having an immense influence today through think organizations like the World Economic Forum. The, the globalist impulse is extremely strong, and the pandemic made it stronger because these globalist groups got a lot of money. What they, you know, the, a huge transfer of income from poor people, ordinary middle class people, to these multinational corporations and others who have a very, very much of a globalist agenda. So transhumanism is very much on the agenda for these groups, and they see transgenderism as a step. Now, if they're right, that means transgenderism is going to continue to to grow because there's a tremendous amount of money behind it. And there's a, you probably know Bilek, Jennifer Bilek. Do you know her? She's another turf. And her sort of specialty has been to unveil the the large organizations that are giving money to the transgender movement. You know, this is not driven by young people sort of spontaneously discovering their true identity. No, they're the Pied Pipers of a very concerted ideological campaign in which a lot the medical industry makes it makes a killing. There's a group called Christian Medical and Dental Association, CMDA. And I heard the president of that on a podcast saying that doctors are telling him that the medical industry is seeing is seeing transgenderism as a windfall. They see it as a windfall, as a great way to make money. But it's not only that, it's also these transgender people are often huge philanthropists like the Pritzkers. You know, the Pritzkers give a huge amount of money. What to do what? To open gender clinics all around the US. You know, that takes money, you know, to pay for people 
who, who to, for doctors and medical people to pay for people who will communicate the transgender message. You know, money makes a huge difference. And there are very large uh, philanthropists, philanthropy organizations that are giving money to the transgender agenda. So we're, I, I like her work because it's helpful. To, I tend to think of mostly the ideas, right? I mean, I'm a university professor, you know, I like the world of ideas. And we, we have to take also into account that all of this takes money. And so it does also depend on these large organizations giving an enormous amount of money to train people who will go into the schools, right? And teach the transgender agenda. You know, to, to train organizations that promote it. Money really is driving the transgender movement more than most of us realize. So I'm glad you told me I could have more than half an hour because I have two strains of thought that I would like I would like to interrogate now because this is very, very, very interesting because I, I, I'm not sure I think that the backlash is a speed bump yet because I'm always of two minds. On one hand, I look at the, the forces that are arrayed against the backlash and it makes me think, okay, but they're going to get swallowed up, right? They, David and Goliath is a great story, but there's only one of them. On the other hand, sometimes I think, well, reality does bite back. And that's what makes this sort of transhumanism thing so interesting. So a bunch of my listeners will be familiar with transhumanism, but let's just define that and then lay out a couple of the tangible goals as put forward by its proponents. So the one proponent you listened, you listed his association, as I understand it, with the World Economic Forum is that he has given a series of lectures there several years in a row now on why he thinks that this is a, a really, really good direction for humanity to go into. And what you have with, like, the World Economic Forum at Davos is essentially sort of like the mother load of bad ideas where you have really rich, really secular, really, air quotes, progressive types who meet together, and what they're concerned with doing is subverting reality in order to attain eternal life by merging with the machine and doing so outside the boundaries of the metaphysical order that you and I as Christians would believe in. Would that be a decent summary of, of the kinds of people that meet there? Yes. I was looking in my notes to find another quote because I have a, I speak on this frequently and oh, here's the transhumanism section. I was trying to find a few more names for you because they're prominent people. Like you say, they're people who speak at the World Economic Forum and Martin Rothblatt is one of them. I've seen him speak before. I think what I'd love for you to do is, is when you say transhumanism, what do you mean? Because to most people, this stuff is going to sound like iRobot science fiction. You know what I mean? Yeah, but iRobot is not science fiction. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. Do you know, if you watched iRobot, did you notice that many times in that film, the phrase was used, the ghost in the machine? Not in that, but I've heard that phrase now used by critics like Paul Kingsnorth and a number of other of these commentators now who really focus on the machine. Well, in that movie, maybe three times it said, you know, there may be a ghost in this machine. You know, there's a particularly competent robot who people begin to think maybe he's, you know, he seems to be almost human. And so characters in the movie will say things like, is there a ghost in this machine? Well, the ghost in the machine is a phrase used to describe the philosophy of, of Descartes, Rene Descartes in the 17th century. In other words, it helps helps you to get a sense of how long these ideas have been around. His dualism of human body was just a machine. It was part of the world machine, you know, the 
the, the universe is a complex mechanism operating by purely natural laws. And so everything that happens in the natural world is completely determined. You know, it's, it's an automatic process. But somehow he wanted to retain the mind as free and autonomous. But he never really found a way to find a connection between them because logically, if the body and the physical world is a machine that's completely determined by material laws, then there is no way for there to be freedom. You know, logically, these are two incompatible ideas. And so at least since Descartes, we've had this incompatibility of you know, two opposite ideas that cannot really be ever integrated into a coherent worldview. I thought it was interesting that that phrase was re revived. By the way, the phrase is from Gilbert Ryle. Gilbert Ryle is a is a early twentieth early twentieth century, I think, uh, philosopher who looked at Descartes' work and 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 coined the term "ghost in the machine." But at any rate, the ghost in the machine notion is exactly what's driving transhumanism, because it's the idea that our bodies are just machines and can be tinkered with like any other gadget, you know, and improved. The the other person I was thinking of who's very prominent is I think he's the AI director at Google. It's Kurt, it's Kurzweil, right? Kurzweil has also written on transhumanism, and here's what he said: the whole idea of a human species, you know, as if we need to respect the human species, is a biological notion. He said what we're talking about is transcending species, transcending biology. Sort of like a sort of like a Tower of Babel, brought to you by Davos. Right. Can we transcend the species? Can we transcend the way God created the universe? I mean, why why accept this as a given? Break free of, of, of Earth, the surly bonds of Earth, and reach heaven, but do so with, through entirely human means. I don't have his name right now, but there was, a, a, again, another prominent university professor who wrote on this, who said, he wrote a book on dignity, which was very popular. He wrote a book on dignity. What, you know, from a secular perspective, where does human dignity come from? You know, I mean, from a Christian perspective, we're made in God's image. From a secular perspective, you know, human rights were always based on we're made in God's image. Even the Declaration of Independence says, you know, we're not going to have inalienable rights unless they come from a transcendent source. Right? They understood if the state creates human rights, then the state can take them away. So the Declaration says endowed by their creator, because that's the only way you have human dignity and human rights. And so secular people have struggled with, well, where do we get the notion of human rights? How, how do we transfer them to a secular basis? So this was a very popular book called, and it was called, I think, just Dignity. At any rate, his argument was the way we achieve dignity is by breaking free from biology, that the biological matrix is keeping us trapped. And the way we break free is is by escaping from that matrix, escaping from biology. And so the very term dignity is now being used to escape from your biology. And you see that in the Supreme Court decisions, right? Kennedy has made several Supreme Court opinions using the word dignity. When he wrote the Obergefell decision, what did he say? He said it's a matter of human dignity to have to allow, you know, legally allow for same-sex marriage. Because why? Because that's breaking free from biology, transferring marriage from a biological basis, you know, men and women create children, so this should be the basis of the family, you know, breaking free from that biological paradigm and saying, no, marriage is based purely on emotion and an emotional connection that you have to another person. 
And and he used the word dignity several times. Sometimes people have said people have actually said that Kennedy has pioneered a jurisprudence of dignity because he's used it several times and always in in cases of breaking free from biology, that dignity consists of breaking three. It started with his comments in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, right, in 1992, when he sort of defined it liberty as the, as the right to define yourself any way you want? I think it's three or four cases that he has explicitly used the word dignity to justify it. And, and so the secular concept of dignity is now being recast, redefined as as breaking free, as not being confined by not taking your identity from your biology. And it's just, it's back to the quote that I gave you from Camille Paglia. You know, when Camille Paglia said, yes, nature made us sexually reproducing species, you know, nature made us male and female, but why not define nature? After all, why should, and I agree with her. If you, if you were a secular person, you know, if you did not think that nature was a product of a intentional creation, then why be bound by it? Sure, you know, if, if it's a product of mindless material forces that, you know, just sort of cast us up out of the slime, why should we be bound by biology? It's perfectly logical. Very interested in, in, in another aspect of this, because one of your earlier books that I that I really loved was Saving Leonardo, which deals with, with, with art and how Christians should approach art. And I think that one of the factors in all of this that isn't much discussed, but I think is very interesting, is the concept of the social imaginary, which, of course, Charles Taylor coined that term in his in his mammoth discussion of, of secularism and a social imaginary just for the listeners who aren't familiar with the phrase right it's just sort of like the ideas and the stories that shape our thinking and what's really interesting to me is the transhumanists have as you just described a very powerful story of of you know from the slime to the stars right it's it's the story of 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 complete and total progress of never ending of never ending you know, progress onwards and upwards of transcending each new barrier until we transcend the, the barrier of the human body itself. And that's a very powerful story in a lot of ways, even though I think it's becoming clear to many people that that sort of mess is only available to, you know, a super rich few, you know, like Elon Musk, who's willing to insert a, you know, neurochip into his brain to increase his capacity and things like that. But, but nonetheless, it's a very powerful story. And the social imaginary just over even the last 30 years has been completely transformed in not only the United States, but across the West to the extent that the vast majority of people know virtually nothing about scripture. What they do know about scripture is derived from movies that make up a part of a competing social imaginary that has replaced the one that used to, to dominate Western civilization. And so as such, we're in this very strange place. Like just to give you one example, DC comics just released a new, a new episode of, of the Joker saga in which he as a man becomes pregnant. Just to give you an idea of, you know, the, the social imaginary is sort of transforming. And, and we still, I would say, Christians who are brought up, you know, reading the Bible, reading all these classics, still inhabit a different social imaginary than those who have grown up inside the digital age, bombarded by primarily secular entertainment. And the culture wars are, in many ways, these clashes between these two competing social imaginaries. Now, as somebody who has done so much work on, the, on how Christians should approach art, etc., do you think that it is possible for us when we're looking at the story of the, the transhumanist movement, the stories that are being sold by the, the, the social imaginary that currently controls the culture, for us to compete with that 
in an effective way on the level of story. When you talk about the secular social imaginary being a, a myth of progress, there's actually a book called The Myth of Progress that, that critiques that. From a, and by the way, it's by a secular person. But the person, I think, who critiqued it from a Christian perspective very effectively was C.S. Lewis. You know, he does have a, it's just an essay, but he does have an essay called The Death of a Great, the Death of a Great Myth. And he acknowledges the, the evolutionary myth, whatever you think of the biology side of it, as a myth of progress, he acknowledges that it's very compelling. It's, it's very attractive. The idea, you know, the, the, the myth of the lower level life forms lifting themselves to ever higher stages. It's interesting that he would acknowledge that this could, this can, it's very heroic, right? And it can capture our imaginations. And he, of course, in the article, he's saying Christians need to do this too. We need to capture the imagination. And Dorothy Sayers, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis, also wrote, the dogma is the drama. You know, when she was trying to say, look, it's, Christianity is not dead, dry dogma. If you really understand the dogma, it's dramatic. It tells a story. And I agree with you that Christians are no longer on the cutting edge of the artistic world as we have been in the past. I mean, if you look at the great artistic masterpieces throughout Western history, you know, for, for centuries, they were motivated and inspired by Christianity. So in one sense, we don't have to invent the wheel. You know, that's the good part. <laughs> the good part is we could go back and see how they inspired, how they were inspired and, and science, I, I don't know if you know this, but I wrote a book called The Soul of Science, in which I talk about how it was Christianity and its view of nature that inspired science. You know, as, you know Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist of religion, he's written on this as well. And he says, look, here's how to make it simple. To have science, you need two presuppositions. The world has a rational order and the human mind is capable of knowing it. And he said, you know, the only religion or philosophy that's ever given us that is Christianity. So again, you know, if, to, to have a Christian perspective in science, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can go back and look at our heritage, at the Christians who've gone before us, whether it's science or the arts or political thought. You know, so much of the greatest work of the Western culture has been, you know, was, in, was created by Christians. So, but I agree with you, we have largely lost that. I know that when I was growing up, I grew up in a Lutheran church very ethnic. So, you know, my dad's side is Swedish. My mom's side is Norwegian. <laughs> and as you may know, ethnic churches are often fairly nominal because they rely on the ethnicity to hold people. And so their commitment to Christianity is rather lukewarm. And when I grew up in the Lutheran church, I left it about halfway through high school. I started asking questions about how, how can we know this is true? <laughs> that's, all, that's all I was asking. How do we know this is true? And I couldn't find anybody to answer those, that question. It was like, wait a minute, you're Swedish. You know? Yeah, Rod Dreher has a great story about that when he became Catholic and, and, and his dad was angry at him and said, we're Methodist. And he said, what do you mean we're Methodist? We never even go to church. It's like the Dreyers are Methodist. And he's like, but like, but it doesn't matter because like we, we never went to church together. And he said, the Methodist church is the church that I don't go to. And when I became a Christian, when I came back to it, it's because I went, I was, I, I was in Europe. We lived in Europe as a child. And so I had gone back. And I went to Labrie in the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer was well known for having an apologetic ministry, in other words, addressing the mind, and having an artistic ministry. You know, he really encouraged Christians to go into the arts. 
And it was a intellectually and culturally rich form of Christianity that I had never encountered before. And so that that was the contrast for me as I realized there is a form of Christianity out there that is intellectually and culturally rich, but it is very rare. I wanted to ask you a question about that because so Anthony Eslin says the same thing in, in Out of the Ashes, and he he basically calls the great Christian classics the unused artillery of the culture wars. And I, I think that's a great phrase, but here's where I have concern with that. So on one hand, yes, we have this corpus of of the greatest works in, in literature from Dostoevsky to Dickens. We have an absolutely phenomenal body of work when it, with regards to poetry. The visual arts, I still think, are are accessible to anybody. But if you look at the way that the digital world, these sort of layers of unreality around us that Kings North and others sort of refer to as the machine— what I find so sinister about that world that's developed since sort of the advent of the smartphone in 2007 is that it's short-circuiting people's attention spans and it's rewiring their brains through neuroplasticity to the point where these sorts of stories become, A, too boring if you give people the option to you know, look at 60 of the best cat videos or play with an actual cat. They're always going to pick the, the virtual thing. And two, they will no longer have the attention span and the capacity to actually engage with these things, especially those works which take an effort to get the payoff. So that would include any of the Russians. It would, inc- it would include Victor Hugo, who was a genius but could have used an editor. But it would even, I think, include really basic things like 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 a Christmas Carol. I notice for for kids now, like Little House in the Big Woods or Heidi, is not going to be interesting to somebody for whom the high drama of ordinary living has never been a reality, but instead reality has been moderated and mitigated through screens. And so I'm worried that the sort of the the collective Christian genius of the past several centuries is becoming inaccessible to young people whose minds are being functionally wired by the machine. There is a homeschool group here in Houston where I live. It's, it's very good. It's called Scola. And for years they taught Francis Schaeffer. And then they found that kids no longer connected with Schaeffer. Now they teach my books. The kids are still reading my books. <laughs> but they shifted. They shifted from Schaeffer to my books because my books were sort of re-explaining Schaeffer in more up-to-date language. And the other story is this. So I've been teaching mostly graduates, graduate courses. And this last semester, my university, Houston Christian University, asked me if I would teach an undergraduate theology class. And at first I didn't, I was not happy. <laughs> I was not happy about it. And I had to sort of talk myself into, okay, this is going to be good. I'm going to learn how to talk to younger people again. I loved it. But you know what I had to do? So it's theology. But of course, I build a lot of apologetics in. And what I did is I went online and I found lots of short, snappy, engaging videos. <laughs> so in the, the textbook opens with the creeds. You know, I believe in God, the father, maker of heaven and earth. Well, how do we know he's the maker of heaven and earth? So we do the cosmological argument and the fine tuning argument and the moral argument. But people like William Lane Craig have created short five-minute animated videos explaining the cosmological argument and the fine-tuning argument. And, and another one is James Warner Wallace. Cold Case Christianity. Cold Case Christianity. Between the two of them, I was able to find a large number of short, snappy, interesting 
videos, I found that that was the stepping stone I needed to use. By the way, Jonathan, you have to add into that the pandemic. They lost a lot of school skills. Lost a lot of school skills and spent way more time in front of screens. So accelerated and exacerbated already existing trends. I was shocked at how much high school teaching I had to do to my freshmen and sophomores. When you're leading them in with videos on apologetics, so I guess one of the things I'm wondering is, is that that addresses a lot of the intellectual concerns. And I think those there, there's a, there's a sort of a whole team of apologists who do that quite brilliantly, but what about their moral imagination, right? This is what, this is what you get from Dickens and Tolstoy and Dostoyevsky and Joanna Speary and Johann Weiss. Like, the moral, ima- the story aspect of it, right? Because like, the abridged versions of these books are mostly trash. What do you do when you have a generation of people to whom those great works are inaccessible? So I don't get to directly teach literature. So what I did with the apologetic side, though, is, so we, we would take, to my surprise, if I took William Lane Craig five-minute video, but stopped it at every point and had a discussion, it took the whole class period. I had no idea. I thought, hey, this is five minutes. These kids will get it in a minute. You know, they'll get it just like that. No, I had to unpack it, explain it, ask questions, give background. And I think that that's probably, you know, the pattern that you're going to have to follow in every area when you're teaching young people. You're going to have to find some way to get them into the subject. There's a, you know, St. John's College, which pioneered the Socratic method of teaching. St. John's, it came out of the University of Chicago, the great books. The University of Chicago is, you know, created the great books. And then St. John's College said, well, let's, let's do a curriculum based on the great books. And so there's, there's one in Annapolis and there's one in Santa Fe. And they have actually created a curriculum for high school to teach high school students how to do Socratic dialogue, Socratic discussions in the classroom. And you know what they did, Jonathan? They took excerpts. They took short, condensed excerpts from great literature, sometimes sometimes literature, sometimes sometimes philosophy, you know, a, a wide range. I was living in D.C. at the time, so I, I went to one of their all-day seminars on how to teach high schoolers because, you know, teaching Socratic method, it's, to me, seems difficult. You know, how do you pull this out of young kids? So I went to the seminar, and they, and then I used the material in a homeschool high school group for two years so that I would get practice. and And... I saw how they could, it's kind of like my five minute videos, they would do a five minute excerpt from a piece of great literature, and then teach the kids how to dig in, how to have a group discussion, how to answer in-depth questions. And it's not like reading the whole book, but it seemed a little bit like that stepping stone that you have to use with younger people today. You have to find ways to find shorter excerpts that, that you can teach them how to do you know, a close reading of the text with something shorter with the assumption that, you know, when they go to the literature class now, they'll, they'll know how to do that with the entire book. But yes, we have to break it. I mean, I'm talking about junior and soft, excuse me, freshmen and sophomores, you know, so I'm finding you have to break it down. Now your problem, I think is the, the problem you're highlighting is that, that we don't have a lot of great literature anymore that's being produced today. And that is a problem. But even with existing literature, we have to break it down into such small stepping stones and hope that that leads them then into studying the larger literature. And some of my students did. It's all integrated for me, right? Just because I think that when we're talking about social imaginaries, I I do think that the, yeah, what we talked about, like the power of the progressive myth 
And then you look at like, well, what what do Christians have with regards to the cultural competition? How how you know? I, I do believe the culture wars are one one description of the culture wars is the clash between these competing social imaginaries. One of them which is on on the wane, and one of the one of them which is on the rise. But that all of our most effective weapons have been fundamentally rendered obsolete by the extent to which we've all. We've all been participating in the in the transformation of society. It's not true that there's no great literature anymore. It's just that, like, I know some phenomenal authors. You know, for example, one who wrote a brilliant Christian trilogy that got published by a mainstream publisher in 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 London. But the amount of the amount of knowledge you have to take into the reading of it limits the readership, right? Your vocabulary has to be at a certain level. You have to understand the references at a certain level. You have to have a, 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 a broad enough outline of history that the book makes some sense to you. And so there's all these barriers now. Like I, I actually suspect there's a lot of artists and writers who could produce very valuable works that aren't getting published because there's not a market for it anymore which is a real tragedy. You mentioned my book, Saving Leonardo, and I, I do want to point out that I made a point of including contemporary Christian artists in each section. You know, I had, I had visual artists and I had musicians and so on. And you're right, it was not always easy to find them, but I did make a point of including some Christians at each stage. In other words, when I dealt with, let's say, the impact of existentialism, you know, I included... Um, artists who influenced by existentialism, or if I if I talked about serialism in music, you know, I included Christians who worked within this worked with serialism in their compositions, and in each case, I was able to show how they used the techniques of modernity, or in some cases, postmodernity, but they used it as an element within a much wider, richer Christian worldview. And how they were able to show that, you know, every worldview has some truth. People are made in God's image. And therefore, the, even the most secular person is aware of some aspects of God real, God's reality. And so you can find something uh, that's true, I would say, in every worldview. And the best Christian artists are the ones who were able to find something that was true in the worldview that was dominant in their day. But then extract what was true and show that that truth actually fits better within the Christian worldview, within this much, much richer, wider, broader structure of a Christian worldview. And that's the, the trick, I think, for Christians today is if they want to speak to the world around us, they have to start by knowing that world. They have to start by knowing the secular world and the secular worldview and this is actually where I find most Christians most efficient, to, to be honest, is they don't want to do the work. Here's how I sometimes put it in my writing. We are missionaries. Every Christian is a missionary. And the first task of a missionary is to learn the language of the people that they're trying to reach. And even if they speak English, you know, they speak a different language because their worldview defines world words differently from the way we do. That's why I find that very concept of a social imaginary helpful, because you realize you have to enter theirs to understand why they think the way they think. Actually, since I mentioned Labrie, Francis Schaeffer's ministry, that was his that was a, a, a metaphor that he used, that we're all missionaries and we need to learn the language. And that was his way of trying to convince Christians, you need to learn the secular worldviews if you're going to communicate to secular people. You need to know how they think and what their questions are, what their objections are, like your way of putting it, the social imaginary that they live in so that you can enter into it. And, and I think in my experience, at least many Christians don't want to do that work. 
They want to, they want the non-Christian to enter their world. No, no, I'll tell you what I think, you know, join me over here. And sometimes that works <laughs> if somebody's really, you know, needy and, and, you know, is looking for answers, but most of the time it doesn't. Well, that's why I find everything's changed so much, even in, in the last 25 years, which is apologetics mainly is now oriented towards buttressing the faith of, of existing Christians because the de- great debate, people aren't becoming Christian, like refusing to consider Christianity because they, they, they think the resurrection is dubious. They're doing it because you don't think their good friend Joe has the right to marry their good friend Steve. And why would you hate them so much? Right? Like the objections to Christianity, like I'm 34 and they have changed radically in the time that I've been engaged in apologetics. Like the objections you hear from the average person have virtually nothing to do with biblical criticism or suspension of uh, of belief when it comes to the miracles. Like that's not the case anymore. Even the origins of the universe, it's largely to do with very emotional, very human stories. And this this view that Christianity is the villain because Christianity is the thing standing between people they know and happiness and fulfillment as they understand happiness and fulfillment. And that's how I usually introduce my book, by the way. I say the questions of change. People are, people are no longer asking, is Christianity true? They're asking, why are Christians such bigots? Yeah, why, why are they mean? Yes, but I would say people are complex and we still need to answer the other questions too because I do also have students who get onto the Richard Dawkins type type websites and they do still have questions about why do you follow the teachings of some Bronze Age deity that was borrowed from the Babylonian myths anyway? That's always just struck me as such high school stuff because even even the new atheists now, I think, have all kind of realized that their idea that as Christianity receded, society would become better was obvious, now obviously false, right? Dawkins is realizing and has Dawkins has gone from saying that we can get rid of Christianity in two generations by ensuring that Christian children are educated in a secular way to admitting that Christianity is probably a better alternative than what he sees coming down the road, right? Douglas Murray has gone from being part of the new atheist movement to saying he wishes he could believe that God existed. He would be one of the sorts, I think, that would fall into the category you're referring to, that they need the arguments, the the the, the William Lane Craig style arguments, the arguments that you deal with. It's, it's been so fascinating watching. I have a shelf full of books written by by apologists like yourself and many, many others. And and so many of the, the, the discussions have changed since then in such a fascinating way. Tom Holland, by the way, would be another one who who's not a Christian, but who thinks that cultural, cultural Christianity is a good thing. Neil Ferguson. And even Helen Joyce, who wrote the book on trans, who's very clearly an atheist, but says, hmm, you know, the Christian ethic has some good things going for it. One of the things, you know, you've probably, you've probably read my earlier book, Total Truth. What I deal with there is the divided concept of truth. You know, when we talked about Descartes and the ghost in the machine, you know, he was representing an example of that divided concept that, you know, we, we have this scientific truth. Where, where nature's huge machine operating by natural laws, but then we have this realm of autonomy where I am myself and I have total freedom. And I, I trace that division throughout history. And and you mentioned saving Leonardo. I didn't expect to find that same split when I decided to deal with the arts. And the first book I read was by the intellectual historian Jacques Barzan. Who I'm, yeah, I'm sure you know him. The first book I read when I started to research Saving Leonardo, Jacques Barzan says, art has split into two basic streams. 
and he called them the naturalist, which is obviously the most scientifically oriented, and he called it the, the idealist, dealing with ideas and the realm of the mind. And I think that we need to always bear in mind that the modern mind is split that way. We still have the Dawkins types who say, in the natural sciences, naturalism, naturalism, <laughs> as a worldview still reigns supreme. You know, there is no God, there is no supernatural, there's no such thing as miracles. You can believe that stuff if you want, but just don't bring it into the public realm. Don't bring it into your science classroom for sure. And that reigns in the, uh, on the college campus, that reigns in the, in the hard sciences. And then you go over to the humanities and you've got postmodernism, which denigrates biology and says, why should we be governed by biology? And that's why... Today, since these moral issues are what, what are so prominent, they're all from the postmodern side. And so I, I think to be, well, to be an effective missionary, again, to use that word, you need to know both. You need to know the naturalistic side because there's still a lot of people who are naturalists. You know, I still hang out with a lot of scientists because I wrote The Soul of Science and I wrote on that subject for a long time. And, you know, many people, I, many of the Christians who work in science are still very, very much dealing with the incredible control that naturalism has on anything that you can say in science. But postmodernism has become so prominent today because that's in the ethics and the social sciences. And so we need to know both of these. I, I think the modern mind is still split between these two basic streams. So to close it off, where can listeners find your books? Well, really anywhere that they like to shop so that you can find them at Christian bookstores or Amazon or Barnes and Noble, wherever you prefer. If ideologically you'd like to support your local bookstore, start there. <laughs> yeah, but they're available anywhere. So we mentioned Soul of Science. We mentioned um, Saving Leonardo, Total Truth, Lovely Body. Yeah. So, oh, Jonathan. <laughs> I'm also working, well, I'm not working on it anymore. I have a new book coming out. I just finished the index. So technically I'm not working on it anymore. It's coming out at the end of June and it's on toxic masculinity. That's in quotes since I do not think masculinity is toxic. So to avoid saying that, the title of the book is The Toxic War on Masculinity. I'll be very interested to read that and have a follow-up discussion. So it is available for pre-order on Amazon. And yes, let's do talk about it. That would be fun. Thank you so much for giving so much of your time. It was a delight. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Nancy Percy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you'd like to listen to past shows or subscribe to future shows, head on over to LifeSightNews.com. Click on the podcast tab. You can find our conversations there. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again next week.